Photography in one form or another exerts a great influence on our daily lives. An illustrative photographer must be imaginative. I think in some ways the goal is to make a picture that actually confuses you or that surprises you. And I think that makes it more interesting for the artist, but also potentially for the viewer. I'm Jordan Weitzman, and you're listening to Magic Hour, my chance to talk with photographers and people involved in the medium. We learn about their backgrounds, thought processes, and ideas that have shaped their work. My guest today is Gregory Halpern, one of the most interesting photographers working today. If you look at his new book, Zizix, a body of work made in California over the past five years, you'll see why. The book is comprised of a mix of portraits, landscapes, and still lives, made out of reality, poetically strung together to create a new, mysterious world of Halpern's own. Like the best of work, his pictures not only speak of the subject matter itself, but they also investigate the possibilities of the medium of photography. What I love about his pictures, aside from being beautiful and seductive, is that they seem to resist being reduced to any one simple reading, yet express Halpern's strong original vision. We had this conversation at his home in Rochester, New York, where he lives with his wife, photographer Andrea Parlato, and their young daughter, Ava. Before pursuing his graduate studies at the California College of Arts, where he and Andrea met, Greg earned a BA in History and Literature at Harvard. He made his first book there, Harvard Works Because We Do, made up of photographs influenced by the work of Milton Rogovin that he first saw as a teenager. It's called triptychs, and you would see people every seven years. It's a really simple concept, and you know they're not like stunning pictures. He wasn't obsessed with trying to make a beautiful composition, but it was the first time a work of art had moved me that way. My first reaction was, what is wrong with me? Why am, I, why am I crying because I'm looking at pictures of another person? Um, and then the second thought was, I need to figure out how to do this. <laughs> 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 so, And then I got to know him. He's a really amazing man. He picked up, didn't pick up a camera until he was in his 50s. And wow. he, he lived to be in his 90s. And he and his wife were just like this sweet... Uh, couple they would walk around together and photograph their neighbors and each year each time he photographed he would bring people prints from the seven years prior and he said inevitably he would hand people the pictures and they would start they would cry everyone would cry he said when and so he became known as like the picture man in the neighborhood the whole thing was incredible and um that book just changed my life hmm. it made you want to photograph people or just it just inspired you in general? I think it inspired me in general to... Well, first of all, I realized that photography was way more complicated than I thought it was. It wasn't just, you know, cool pictures. Yeah. Uh, it was something that could somehow, like, describe the human condition. Mm-hmm. And what I liked is it felt the, that book was made around the corner from us in this sort of very, um, you know, it's working class forgettable neighborhood right but he found all the drama of like a Shakespeare play and put it into these you know lives it seems that 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 probably had a big um, influence on your first project yeah so the first project I did after that was Harvard works because we do which was very in retrospect was very much just derivative of Milton Rogovin's approach and his aesthetic I guess the way I would explain this project was without going into too much detail, while I was a student there, the, the endowment of the school 
had tripled. So this is like late 90s and the stock market is exploding. So their endowment had gone from $7 billion to $21 billion, making it the world's wealthiest nonprofit. Uh, and in the same years, they had been cutting the wages of custodians and food workers and security guards to cut corners and costs. And a good friend of mine started this living wage campaign to try to f- reverse these wage cuts. And I was not political at all. I was not, did not think of myself as an activist at all. And mainly because of my friend, I started to get, I went to a meeting basically to be like, uh, you know, no one's going to, no one's going to go to Aaron's meeting. I should go and, you know, keep him company and sort of support him. Mm-hmm. So I went to the meeting and I got really intrigued and upset at what I learned. And so I started to use the camera as a way of trying to tell this story. I would photograph, I started to meet like hundreds of people who worked on campus and I would photograph them and interview them about their jobs and what it was like to work at this incredibly this place of incredible privilege but to to really struggle to make ends meet you know some of them were working like 60 or 80 hours a week um one of them was you know cleaning up at these black tie affairs and then literally going to eat the soup kitchen mm-hmm. so the work was very political in that sense and it was I, you know, I, I still believe in the politics of that project, but I found, I felt ultimately that it was, it didn't make for interesting art, mm-hmm. you know, like I felt like I was contributing something to a problem that upset me. I was making a small effort to try to correct a problem, but I'm much more intrigued now by the idea of giving the viewer more space to interpret the work. Mm-hmm. And I feel like as a viewer, I'm just so much more, um, you know, appreciative when a, when an artist sort of gives me that room. You felt like those pictures kind of pinned it down too much. Yeah, exactly. So it made you think about more having more open-ended qualities in pictures. Yeah, because there were pictures I would see that were interesting, but that I couldn't take or include in the project because they didn't serve that agenda. I felt like I was more, I was increasingly interested by those pictures. You know, they complicated the narrative or contradicted something, and I got. And that's how the world is, you know, it's, it's sort of, it's, it's always contradictory and idiosyncratic. And I like that, you know? Yeah. What did you do afterwards? You started working, you started working in a different way? After that was when, it's funny, it took me that long to really feel like to, to, that photography was what I, was my path, if you will, you know? So I went to graduate school after that, which was my way of sort of committing to it full time. Where did you go? I went to California College of the Arts. Mm-hmm. And um, in undergrad, my teacher was Chris Killip, who was an incredible teacher. And he he sort of guided me through that project at Harvard. And he said, you should go study with Larry Sultan at CCA. Yeah. And so I trusted Chris 100%. And I applied and got in. And it was, yeah, it was a great, a great decision. Had you known of of Larry Sultan's work? Had you seen pictures from home? Or Yeah, I'd seen pictures from home. I still had very little knowledge of contemporary photography. I mm-hmm. was like going into this backwards kind of. What were his classes like? How did he teach? He was, um, Larry was this like wonderful mix of, he could be poetic, but also, you know, one moment he could be poetic and one moment he could be, highly intellectual and then the next moment he could be sort of silly and crass and it was sort of like you didn't know 
you didn't always know which Larry would come out, but it was just, I don't think we admitted it, but I feel like we all were just so excited to sit, to go to that class and just like, you know, watch Larry come in and like see how he would react to work. I mean, he was kind and generous with his time and made you feel like what you were doing was worthwhile. What were you working on while you were there? I was like completely lost in graduate school. Um, I had a really hard time and I even thought about leaving the program. I couldn't figure out what to photograph out there at all. I think it was because I was behind the curve. Like all my classmates knew about contemporary art and I was still learning. Mm-hmm. And my view of photography, I think, was perceived as as old fashioned, which is which was totally true. So first year was rough. Um, and then my second year, I kind of it's funny, I came, I wound up coming back to Buffalo for like six weeks, and I just photographed constantly every day for six weeks. And that kind of became my thesis project. Do you think that that feeling of not knowing or not um, it, it not coming quickly enough to you, do you think it um, it inevitably had a, a positive impact on your work? Yeah, maybe. I mean, it's in a way it's like something that I've I've made peace with and it's easier now because I don't have to, you know, go to class and explain it or defend it. But for me, having giving myself the space to sort of um, make the pictures in a more intuitive way and then like not looking for months even. Sometimes I'll shoot for months and just make a big pile of film because I feel like taking the pictures is this more intuitive process and then looking at them and editing is a more analytical or self-critical process. And sometimes once I start editing, I I often want to start editing. I don't like what I see and I'm I'm upset with the pictures and I and then I feel like I don't want to go out and shoot again. Yeah. <laughs> so if I want to shoot, sometimes I just let that go as long as I can, where I'm enjoying the shooting process. And, um, and I don't always know where, I, where it's leading. Mm-hmm. And I think in a way that while that was really hard in school, it, it's, it's wonderful now because it, it's, it's just a more enjoyable process for me. And I think in some way, like unconsciously, you do know where you're going, mm-hmm. you know. But I don't always have the words for it until I start looking and editing. And sometimes it doesn't come till months or years later. Mm-hmm. I guess the I, what I was getting at was something we were talking about um, earlier, which was there's something that you that you're trying to figure out that you're really you're really into, you're really passionate about. You're trying to figure it out, but you're not quite getting it. But you stick with it in order to you keep on going with it. Well, in some ways, like if the pictures aren't working, if they're not. If, if, if you feel like you're not good, which I didn't feel like I was good at photography f- at first at all, I, was, I wanted to get better and figure out what I could do to, to make them better. And in that sense, it's very gratifying to, to, learn, to, to watch your pictures get better over time. But also, I feel like if you know exactly what you're doing and know exactly what you want to say and what exactly you want the viewer to get from the work, then it becomes uninteresting and boring to make it and starts to feel like a job right and and so i think in some ways the goal is to is to make a like could you make a picture that actually confuses you or that surprises you and i think that makes it more interesting for the artist but also potentially for the viewer that's how you operate that's how you work is you go out and you you might have certain certain ideas in your head but they're but then you go out and the, the, the picture-making process is, is very intuitive. 
Yeah, and I, I, I think it's a weird mix of, like when you look at the pictures and edit and analyze, that informs you when you go, it informs your intuition. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then your intuition gets slightly more yeah. specific yeah. or pointed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's so funny because I relate so much to, to everything that you're talking about. Because you work the same way. Very similarly. Or yeah. I feel very similarly in, in where the, the excitement comes from mm-hmm. and the curiosity and the things that kind of the, that hold your interest. Mm-hmm. That kind of not necessarily understanding them, knowing there's something there, but not totally understanding them. Yeah. Yes. Um, Ron Jude, who's a friend and uh, an amazing artist, I think, said something about he likes when a picture nags him. Mm-hmm. And I like that word because it it's like a, a picture that you don't necessarily like and you don't hate. Something about it like nagged at him and it he kept coming back to it and it, thinking about it. And he, he, I think he said that work that nags at you is work that that he, uh, in the end, values. Mm-hmm. Like when you look at a book and you don't know what to make of it and it nags you. I mean, sometimes you love it and those are the ones you don't pick up a second or third time. And sometimes you hate it and you don't pick it up again. But it's the ones that kind of nag you. <laughs> yeah. That you come back to and sometimes are the most gratifying. It seems that that's almost like an interesting segue from... Uh, from your Harvard work that you did into the work that you would go mm. on to do because it seems like you do that really, really well is that, you know, the pictures in, in A and in your new book, they're very artful pictures, but they're tough pictures at the same time. They're, uh, and they're not so easy to kind of pin down. Yeah, I think, um, you know, after making that early work when I was in, in college, I felt like in some ways it was helpful to make because it, I wanted to not do that. I wanted to make pictures that were like, were aware of the language of photography and um, that the content was interesting and spoke to the stuff that interested me, but, but that, yeah, portrayed it in a way that I thought was more, <laughs> more sophisticated or sort of self-aware. How do you approach making portraits? People ask me that a lot, and I feel like I have a very unsatisfying answer, <laughs> mm-hmm. but I'll try. Um, I'm really, I try to like not change my demeanor or at all in terms of how I talk. You know, of course, I try to maintain like a very, I just try to maintain like a high level of respect for whoever I'm photographing because I know I'm asking for a sort of enormous act of generosity. So I try to always keep that in mind, that I'm asking a lot from someone. And then just very directly say, you know, you know, hi, I'm working on a project that's loosely about Los Angeles or something along those lines. Keep it simple but honest. And um, I'd love to take your portrait. <laughs> you know, yeah. really simple. A lot of people I photograph, I think, actually enjoy having their picture taken, but... I'm very, I try to be sensitive to the fact that it's uncomfortable for a lot of people. Yeah. And then um, I have I have a little card that I just print, on, like an inkjet card that has my email address, and I just give it, you know, if anyone's interested, I always say, like, that's me. If you're ever interested in getting a free copy, it's amazing how so few people actually contact me, but it feels like a very small act of generosity in, in return. 
Mm-hmm. And it also is a way for them to identify me and know who I am and find me if they want to. So it's sort of slightly an act of saying, you're giving me something. This is a very small gesture, but I'm going to give you something. Yeah. So it's just feels like maybe a respectful way to begin. And there's always a complicity. Yeah. Well, there's occasionally a picture I'll take without. It's really rare. Not that I have a problem with it, but I just, I feel much more comfortable usually talking to people first. Mm-hmm. And I think for the way I shoot, I don't necessarily need to be sneaky about it. So like 99% of the time I'll talk to people first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you look for in, in the people that you select? It's sort of like, um, <laughs> you know, like if you're on the subway, you know, you're told not, like as a kid, you're taught not to stare. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm always, in, you know, I think about that a lot because in some ways photography, like portraits are it's sort of like a way to break that rule. You could just stare at someone longer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it's a way sometimes <laughs> to stare at a person I want to stare at longer. And then there's the question of why do you want to stare at that person? Um, and, you know, one thing is that I don't fully understand portraits, like what makes a portrait work. It's very hard to put into words. And I think in some ways that's what one of the things I really like about them, that if I like, if I ever figured out the recipe mm-hmm. <laughs> or formula that the pictures, probably the pictures wouldn't be good, but I also wouldn't be as interested in making them. Sometimes it's something simple, like a person is both beautiful or um, there's something both both sort of graceful, but also hard about a person or, um, you know, a man, for example, might be look sort of both aggressive and vulnerable. And I love that. You know, I love when a person, I mean, that's what it, to me, that's like what it is to be a human is to have these contradictions and flaws. And, you know, you, pre, you attempt to present one thing, but something else comes through always. And so I love, I love those moments. And so I always try to, like if a person is all one thing, it doesn't seem like an interesting portrait to me. When you're making unpeopled pictures, mm. landscapes, still lifes, whatever you want to call them, pictures without people, do you look for the same kinds of things in those pictures that you do in portraits? Yeah, you know, I think in some ways it is similar to making a portrait. I often thought that photographing a house was like photographing a portrait. You know, there's that simple thing where like windows could be eyes or, and the door sometimes looks like a mouth, which is sort of like a, s- a silly way of thinking about it. But yeah, I think in some ways I am looking for similar things where one thing in a picture maybe contradicts another thing in the, in the image. Um, and it, it, in some ways it comes back to that early work I did at Harvard where I couldn't allow any contradictions because my agenda, I needed to make my point clear that, you know, the, the wage structure, you know, given Harvard's endowment was unethical. And so every picture had to serve. There couldn't be any confusion. And I, I've increasingly become really fascinated by that. One thing contradicts another. Or there's tension in the picture or... Um, it's not as quick of a read, mm-hmm. you know, like you, the pictures you like a lot at first sometimes are the ones that, uh, you get sick of mm-hmm. and I sometimes grow to hate them because they feel like too easy or they feel manipulative. Right. And then it's the ones that, yeah, the other ones that, um, you're not sure about that sometimes sneak up on you, you know, mm-hmm. like I like when a picture 
when I still like a picture after months or preferably years. And for me, I kind of work slowly. I mean, I, each of these books is about five years of work. So I've had that luxury of just sitting on the pictures. Mm-hmm. And um, like, if I like the picture, that's, that's great. I'm like, okay, I'll take it out again in three months and see if it still is okay. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's very helpful for me to do that. When you make pictures in general, like let's say uh, you're making, whether it be a portrait or, or, uh, or an unpeopled picture, do you take multiple frames? Yeah, I wish I could just, you know, set up a four by five and do one, but... Yeah, the reason that I'm asking that is I was wondering if you ever find those kind of in-between pictures where in-between, let's say, five or six frames, a mm-hmm. kind of one-off that you d- that you took but maybe didn't think that it was mm-hmm. so good when you did mm-hmm. or so interesting and yeah. they kind of deton- like detonates afterwards. Yes, totally. That happens? Or I'll take 20 pictures from one angle that I, at the time I'm convinced is the most stunning picture I've ever made and then I look at the contact sheets and I'm like what on earth was I thinking like obviously I should have stepped to the left one yeah I'm so jealous of photographers who can sort of see a scene and like I mean I don't know if you know I think about like Stephen Shores on commonplaces yeah you know he's always seems like he knows where to stand yeah those pictures it's like he nails it you know and I just feel like it would take me months to get each of those do you feel that you find pictures like you might respond to something and then uh, in kind of working the frame in a very intuitive way that you'll find something else within that frame and find another picture. Yeah. Um, <laughs> one time I had this idea to photograph. There was this little waterfalls near where I was living and it was in winter and the, I knew the waterfall was going to freeze and I really wanted to photograph it. So I hiked up to this waterfalls and I was, I spent like, oh, I don't know, 15 minutes trying to photograph this waterfalls. And then I turned around like 180 degrees behind me and there was this big dead snake just lying on the ice. Mm-hmm. It was like the craziest thing, you know, I'd ever seen. I guess what happened is it had fallen because there was a cliff above. I don't know exactly what it was. And I I just had completely missed it because I was so focused on trying to take this picture of the thing that I'd set out to photograph. Mm-hmm. And I had completely just, my eyes were just totally not open to the other thing, which was much more fascinating and strange. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like there's there was a lesson for me in that. Yeah. You know, like the thing that gets you out the door with your camera is great because it gets you out the door with your camera, but it's not necessarily the thing that is the most interesting or worthwhile thing to photograph in the end. Right. Do you find that you have certain preconceptions in your head, certain ideas, certain things you're interested in, and then the pictures that you kind of find to bring back, you you almost could never have imagined them in a way? Yeah, I think that's rare when that happens, but I feel like that's always exciting, you know? It's rare when it happens? Yeah, because, you know, and maybe the longer you work on a project, the more rare it becomes because you kind of hone your vision a little bit. And sometimes you end up honing it so tightly that that you're not open to those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it seems like that's the goal as an artist is to, is to stay open to those things and continually try to have those moments. So when you go out, you have specific things that you're looking for. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's just a feeling. You mm-hmm. know, it's like I want to. I'm looking for a picture that makes me feel like this or that does that. Uh, 
But yeah, I mean, that's the thing is it always feels like you need that. You need that to hold the body of work together, some cohesion, but too much of it, it becomes just the whole thing becomes like a, like a sledgehammer on Mm -hmm. repeat, you know? Yeah. And for whatever reason, photographers, I feel like have a tendency to do that. I mean, myself included. It's like we don't expect our readers, our viewers to sort of have the visual intelligence to make sense of the work. The way I feel like painters and sculptors just assume my audience is going to bring a certain degree of analysis to this. And photographers sometimes forget that readers can do that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I wanted to ask you about working with Jason Fulford. The first thing you did with him was a, a small artist book called Omaha Sketchbook. Yeah. Um, this is, I like this story because a lot of young photographers like want to publish a book and don't know how to go about it. And it's a weird, every time in, that I've done it, it's a funny process that's like unique to that situation. And with Jason, I was a huge fan of his work for years, and had never met him or approached him, but I wanted to. I mean, I, I really thought JNL was like just, uh, I mean, such an innovative and just interesting press and kind of unpredictable. And I liked that. And so my brother and he, who never had met or heard of each other, wound up at a bachelor party together. <laughs> and um, actually, it was a bachelor party on a boat. And everyone was drinking and puking. Yeah. <laughs> Jason and my brother were like not drinking. And so they wound up hanging out on like the deck somewhere talking. And Jason said, my brother asked Jason what he did. And he said he was a photographer or publisher. And my brother said, oh, my brother's a photographer. His name is Greg Halpern. Maybe, and maybe you know him. Jason, was, Jason had apparently seen my work and liked it. And so my brother told me that. And I finally thought okay and then finally I worked up the nerve to approach Jason and he was very generous he met with me and he looked at prints and he um he didn't say you know let's publish a book he just it was kind of a good lesson for me because it was like making meeting someone it was like you know it's like a date you know Mm -hmm. it's kind of like we we kind of hit it off and um I thanked him for his time I left the portfolio with him he wanted he said can I hold on to this I said, sure, yeah. I mean, it's better for him to have it than to sit under my bed. So he he held on to it. And then like six months later, I kind of needed it back. So I said, you know, hey, is, you know, any chance I could, uh, you could send it back or I could pick it up or something. So I think he mailed it back. And I thought, well, that's that. Okay, you know, at least I, I met him and, you know, that's cool. We're in touch now. And then years later, I think it was three years later, he was coming through Rochester um, with a photographer um, named David Laspina, mm-hmm. who I kind of knew. 
and David w- was like, hey, my friend Greg Halpern lives here. Do you know him? And so anyway, they stopped in and looked at work. And I showed Jason my work, my new work. And again, it was a similar thing. Like, it was really nice to see him and show him work. And But I don't think anything really jumped out at him as something he wanted to publish. And then before he was about to leave, I said, well, there's this other thing I did that, I don't know, this is this is just a weird sketchbook that's kind of in progress, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. So I broke out this sketchbook that was made on, um, it was made on all these different pieces of like colored uh, construction paper. Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't white paper, it was, you know, every color you'd get in a box of construction paper with context sheets just kind of like uh, stuck to the pages. And he instantly was like, he loved it. And mm-hmm. he said, let's, let's do it. Let's make like a, the book fair, the New York Art Book Fair was in like a matter of maybe weeks mm-hmm. or something. It was close. And he said, let's just scan this and print it on a laser copy, laser printer, bind it. And uh, so I just, I just did it. I scanned it. We printed it on a laser printer. We did like 35 copies and brought it to the New York Art Book Fair. And... Um, you know, I think I sold one, maybe two copies, mm-hmm. and I traded one uh, with Ron Jude. Mm-hmm. And, but it was like as exhilarating as doing the first book, which was like a print run of five thousand, the Harvard Works book, because this just felt like, okay, I'm trying to find this new way of using photography, like a new voice, and you know, it's only thirty five copies in the world, but. You know, Jason liked it, and we had it on the table of the New York Art Book Fair, and it was just such a thrill for me. So yeah. I, and I felt like, okay, I've like, I'm on a new path now. I've like, kind of, that was that was huge for me. So when you started working on A, did you know that was it always a book in your mind, or you just kind of started making those pictures? No, that was not a book in my mind. It was it was just random pictures, um, and then I'm trying to think how that came about. Uh, it was random pictures made over the years in various cities that I had kind of been piecing together. I had made a book dummy, like a physical dummy, and showed that to Jason, um, Jason Fulford, and he said, "Let's let's do a book like a, you know, not a laser printed edition of thirty five. Let's do like a hardcover edition of a thousand of this of this work." Mm-hmm. And so then I took probably another two years to just expand that project. For me, that's really nice to kind of like get a project going, find an outlet for it, and then keep working on it because that I find that really inspiring to know that someone is going to actually you mm-hmm. know, show it or publish it. And that was very inspiring to have, to have that. So I worked, I shot for probably at least another year and then edited for probably a year. Did you have an idea of what you wanted to do with the book? I think I had a feeling, but it's funny. I remember a phone conversation with Jason about making it, and I think he was also urging me to kind of not not um, be so directed about how I shot or what I was ma- what we would make. Mm-hmm. You know, his his advice was to just keep making work, mm-hmm. and then we would meet. We would go. I'd go down to Scranton to meet with Jason, and you know, spend the night, and we would just look at pictures for hours on end Mm -hmm. and together we would kind of make sense of it all. You know, in some ways the aesthetic is really clear, uh, 
and the subject matter is pretty tight. So in some ways it's all there, but you know, where Jason came in in a huge way was just helping me see what is serving, you know, which pictures do you cut to make it better? Mm-hmm. And that's so hard. It's always been hard for me to do that, you know, to see my own work clearly. So I like really having someone who I can trust, who I, whose work I respect to help me. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jason is, has been that person for me a lot. Um, my wife, Andrea Parlato, who's a photographer, is like a go-to for me. She's brutally honest, <laughs> mm-hmm. sometimes to a fault, but, <laughs> you know, in the end, that's what you want, like someone who tells you it's working or not working. When you're working on a book project, be it uh, A or the new book, Zizik, is that how you pronounce it? Uh, Zizix. 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 <laughs> <laughs> or some... In, in Britain, I've noticed that they say Zizix. Zizix. <laughs> <laughs> so, you could have your, your choice. Uh-huh. I kind of like Zizix. Yeah. Can you articulate or speak about what that world that you wanted to create was or is? Okay, so on a simple level, I wanted it to be grounded in reality. Like, I wanted the pictures to come out of reality, but I wanted it to feel like, um, almost like magical realism, where what you expect to happen doesn't necessarily happen or um, that there would be some new form of like the genre would get confused at points where you would feel there might be a documentary aesthetic, but the feeling might be more fiction or sci-fi even. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that that was sort of like the feeling I wanted to create with the pictures. I've also like, I have these dreams that about a place like a city that's recurring dream. And it's the most amazing thing. Like, I don't dream very often. I'll have a dream every, you know, two, three months. But Hmm. it's this amazing city that's sort of, it's sort of the city where that is Zizix, you know. It's it's like incredible when I have one of these dreams. I'm always excited. I'm like, wake up, I tell Andrea. Like, I I dreamt about that place again, you know. And I've been been trying, I always write down what what happened there. It's like, densely urban but then has these incredible moments moments of like of natural beauty just like the way i think of la you know it's like this dystopian urban place but there are these crazy moments of beauty in terms of the mountains or the sunlight or the flowers you know in the most unexpected you know alleyway and it's like that Mm. it's incredible and so in some ways that's that place was uh important too you know to creating the book so interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's like I wish I could just uh, find a way to go to that, you know, to have that dream more often. Yeah. I started researching, like, how to have more dreams or how to remember your dreams. And <laughs> you, you could eat certain cheeses, apparently, that, uh, you know, make it more likely to have a vivid <laughs> dream. I tried that. And it's a certain kind of blue cheese, like mold. <laughs> I think it was... Uh, Dali used to eat like crazy amounts of moldy cheeses before he'd go to bed. No way. I think it was Salvador Dali. Really? Yeah. So we tried it. <laughs> we bought all these really moldy cheeses. It didn't work for us, but maybe I didn't do it long enough or eat enough. Oh man, that's pretty funny. Do you ever have the feeling that you can photograph anywhere? I've never had that feeling. No? No, it's funny. I always feel like I kind of want to get to know a place slowly mm-hmm. before I feel like I okay I can dig in do you feel that um when you start to wander around you kind of just get lost a bit in in your meandering like you kind of get lost in in your head and you almost get into the zone 
that's where you're not really thinking. You're kind of just responding. Totally. I mean, sometimes I think the camera is just an excuse to go for a walk or be alone or just look or be present in the world. Yeah. You know, an excuse to go down that street I've been curious about or knock on that door, you know. I mean, it's it's weird. Mm-hmm. But there's no time for that. You know, I don't make time for that. Yeah. It's like, it's like okay, I'm, I'm being, quote, productive because I have my camera, <laughs> you know, so I can go do this thing and just be like a person alive in the world. Yeah. You know? I asked you if you can, if you feel like you can photograph anywhere. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you can photograph anyone? I wish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't. Yeah. I have trouble photographing getting good pictures of people who, and this is weird, people who are close to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm able to get pictures of Andrea, my wife, but I don't think they're necessarily interesting pictures, you know, as art. They're pictures that <laughs> that we like, you know. Um, I don't know why it's very, really strange for me, but I've, I'm more comfortable, um, photographing people I don't know well. Hmm. Um, I'm more at ease and they're more at ease and it's really, I've always found that strange and maybe that's like, uh, mm-hmm. maybe I should be concerned about that. I don't know what that means, but it's for whatever reason it's tr- been true. Is that an important thing for you in terms of looking at, looking or making new work? I, I don't know if it's important to me, but I really... I am impressed when someone else can do that. I would like to have seen what Eggleston's pictures felt like when he made them. Because there's, of course, this charm to them because of the, this feeling of, like, the era and the, the signs and the mm-hmm. even the color of the, the film, the chrome, you know. I mean, it's like, that's part of why it's so fascinating to look at. But I wonder what it looked like then. I know. But your pictures do seem very, very contemporary in in the best of ways. Hmm. Like they definitely do feel of now. And I think for me that has that has to do with the way of seeing. And I can't totally describe it, but it has to do with the way you photograph pe- both people and landscape and hmm. things. Even though when you do look at the pictures, there aren't any contemporary cues necessarily like cars or signs or mm-hmm. they almost do like feel like they're part of a, a very kind of unique and personal world. Yeah. It's a strange thing. It's almost hard to articulate why that is. I'm not sure if that's something you think about at all. Yeah. I mean, I put one picture in the book of a guy holding this device in his hand with the Warner Brothers symbol. And for me, that was sort of one of the only cues to, well, is one of the only cues to Hollywood, but also of this sort of moment technologically. And I liked how a lot of the other pictures felt like they could almost be biblical or in like a time in terms of their timeline. Mm -hmm. But then there was that picture that felt to me felt contemporary. Yeah. I remember thinking, how do you do that? How do you take a picture of uh, with a computer or with a phone in it? That's not just horribly, you know, ugly or uninteresting. Yeah. I felt like I needed to have that in there. I like that one. For me, it has to do with, the the Warner Brothers logo. Yeah, yeah. On, on the smallness of that screen. Yeah, I mean, that world of Hollywood is so... I mean, such a big part of L.A. in some ways, mm-hmm. you know, that I, I couldn't ignore it, and I liked how it was, like, seeping in. It feels like it's seeping in, even through this little device, the sort of, like, 
vision of the world as seen through Hollywood. Yeah. But I didn't want to give it too much power, too much authority. <laughs> yeah. What are you working on now? What, what's next? Oh, boy. I, um, I don't know exactly, but I kind of have this hunch that uh, I want to do something just specifically where, around where I live now, mm-hmm. um, Rochester and Buffalo. And I have this, I have like, uh, if I go back to 2003, I feel like that was the first picture I took in this area that I really thought was good. So I had this thought of going back through all those pictures and then adding adding to them mm-hmm. and making something yeah from this from this area from this area. Do you like working at home? Uh, yes and no. I mean, it's funny. It felt like being in LA was so much easier for, in some ways because I could see it all so clearly. Yeah, and I kind of have come to know this area where I, I mean I've grew up here and. I wonder, sometimes I used to think, oh, I, I have this like unique uh, perspective because I know it so intimately. And now I'm like, not so sure, mm-hmm. you know, whether it helps sometimes to see a play. I think it definitely helps sometimes to not, to be an outsider. Yeah. But I've been fascinated by it, by, the, by you know, by this area. And I'd like to do something, I'd like to do something with it. Mm. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing that work. Thanks. Yeah, <laughs> it'll be a lot of snow and uh, gray. Yeah, none of that LA color and sunlight, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> do you like going out in the cold weather and working? I kind of do. Yeah. Yeah. Like I love it when we have a crazy snowstorm, and that's if I can, I like to go out then. During the snowstorm or afterwards? Like I like during. You like during because no one else is out, and um, this it's very quiet. Yeah. And it's uh, you know it can be. Stunningly beautiful. I mean, winter is long here and, and um, you know, kind of ugly. There's a lot of gray and brown. And so it's stun- It's sort of stunningly beautiful. I mean, I know it's cliche, but I, I think that's okay. You know, we need, we need some beautiful cliches around here once in a while. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess we'll end on that note. Okay. Thanks a lot for having me. Yeah. Oh, thank you. It's great. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Like, great to talk to you. That was my conversation with Greg Halpern. This episode was produced by me, Jordan Weitzman, and was edited by Crystal Duhame. Music in this episode by Michelle Macklin, Depeik, and the Monks. If you enjoyed this episode or have any feedback for us, leave us a comment on iTunes. We'd really appreciate it. To listen to our other conversations and learn more about this podcast, visit us at magichourpodcast.org. 